You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, I'm Wally Rudolph, and I wrote a book called Mighty Mighty. Wally Rudolph is the author of the literary thrillers Four Corners and Mighty Mighty, both published by Counterpoint Softskull Press. Born in Canada to Chinese-Jamaican immigrants and raised in Texas, he's traveled and lived throughout North America, but now calls the City of Angels home. He's the former co-chair of the Asian American Writers Committee of the WGA and was the Fall 2019 Writer-in-Residence at the Annenberg Beach House in Santa Monica, California. Mighty Mighty is a modern-day fable set in a crumbling metropolis riddled with urban poverty and violence. Dirty apartments, tattoo parlors, food kitchens, these are the markers of a home for the struggling young adults around Chicago. Steffi is an artist at Ghost Town, the local tattoo shop, trying to provide for her younger sister Amanda and their ailing grandfather. Amanda is hoping for something better, seeking to escape a past riddled with addiction and an abusive relationship with Georgie. When he confronts her one drunken night at a dive bar, the situation turns violent. Amanda barely escapes with her life, but Georgie lies dead on the bathroom floor. This one mistake puts two sisters in the crosshairs of Georgie's father, a twisted, corrupt ex-cop now out for revenge over the murder of his son. His quest for vengeance will make the neighborhoods of Chicago tremble, leaving no one untouched. Mighty Mighty is a harsh and realistic look at the struggle of two families desperately trying to get out from under the heavy boot of violence and poverty. Like the works of Richard Price and Dennis Lehane, the novel is a startling and accurate portrait of contemporary urban life. The idea for Mighty Mighty started with the photography of a very close friend named Amanda Beaumont. She was a photographer. We had connected through mutual friends. And basically, she had chronicled her whole life from the time that she was 16 up until she was 33, 34 when I wrote Mighty Mighty. And she shared it with me. It was a stunning body of work. It is a stunning body of work, the detail of it. I had used one of her earlier photographs in a companion piece to a short story that I wrote called Pemiscot Man. Eventually, I had spent so much time with the photography that I asked her, would you mind if I base a book off these photographs? Because they were just becoming a really big, big part of my life. And the process began very literally. I'd see a photo of Amanda at a bus station and start working with that concept. I took Amanda, who was based in Maryland, and moved her to Chicago, which I knew extensively. But then I added other characters, namely Norman, and I wanted to engage on a lot of police brutality that we were seeing. And through Norman, this idea of this retired homicide detective. So I connected the dots, and it was pretty literal. There was a romance in them. I sensed America in them. The America I knew in them. At the time. Once again, at the time, I have to say at the time, I was raising a lot of hell at that time. And I saw in Amanda and her people the same kind of ennui, punk rock, fuck you, tear it down. I was seeing all that energy moving into true adulthood like I was. The narrative physics of that book are very much based in reality. 
this was when Detroit was going through a big decline. Then you layer on that what was happening in Ferguson at the time. I did extensive research into the Chicago Police Department and some of the, they have, you know, systemic corruption on, on such a large scale, especially through the 60s and 70s under John Berg. Homelessness was in my orbit. Our household was involved with a lot of homeless outreach. My partner at the time was working over there. So through that, all these things started to come together in terms of the contemporary American condition that I was seeing. What I really ended up exploring on a deeper level was the decline of whiteness in American culture. If I was successful, there's a big examination in the idea of them struggling with that, all kind of encapsulated in the character of Norman. Here we have a career cop, decorated, retires, was literally on top of the world, could quite literally get away with murder. And now he's placed into the times we're living in where cops are being demonized. And the good old days to him are the days that he could tear through the city like a banshee and no one could stop him. But now we're dealing in modern times. His son's a a meth head. And within him, with him struggling with that, you know, I was trying to get at that. I was trying to chronicle that, the changing face of the nation, the changing face of what the existing majority culture and the decline of it and the rise of another. And to this day, I'm a big believer in the idea of American contemporary fiction. I believe in redefining it, being that I am an immigrant. At the time, I was really trying to write a very deep dive into the problems of poverty that we were seeing in the modern America city. Grab a snapshot of what I was seeing. But as time went on, it took on a life of its own at some point. Amanda became my Amanda, more of a character, less of a person. The whole family took on a life of its own. And as novels do, that wonderful thing occurred where it came to life. That is where there was a departure. That is where the piece really moving on its own two legs. My first novel, Four Corners, came out hot and fast. Even though it took a while to get published, it was a fever dream of a novel. And with Mighty Mighty, it was exactly the opposite. It was a much slower process. My family and I were considering moving to Portland. So I had gone up to Portland before our move date and got an apartment and wrote every day for seven months. Four to five hours sessions. It would be hard-pressed to do that, that kind of level of intensity. And just me and Duke, my dog. And we did that for seven months. And work ended up bringing us back to Los Angeles. All in all, it took me four and a half years. That's usually about how long for me. It's about a five-year process to get the manuscript to a place that it's ready to be seen. I write longhand. I did write longhand. (laughs) That's the last one. I wrote my first two novels longhand, notebook to legal pad, two drafts in longhand and then typed out. The idea was within that process, I would get three revisions before it was in Microsoft Word. I had a chance to clean and clean and clean in the hopes it would help the editing process. With this novel, it didn't help that much. It was still a a pretty intense editing process with Dan Smetanka over at CounterPoint. What has stayed the same is my belief in oral invocation of language. Oral, A-U-R-A-L, as... My favorite poet, Anne Sexton, would say, and Mercy for the Greedy, in my favorite poem. You know, this is what poems are. The tongues wrangle, the world's pottage, the rat's star. 
I was groomed by Greg Glazer on the poetry side. And the idea of letting the sound of language, of music adhering to truth, is one way to put it, it was a lot of trying to find the sound of these passages. If I, It was obsessive in terms of finding the sound of the passages, of having these words fit together and the certain rhythm that I thought surprised me that I felt there was an invocation of emotion and layering on top of that imagery. And once these things are occurring in a certain harmony, then there's a magic that's happening. And when I felt it, then I would continue into the chapter. I did the whole Hemingway trick on the daily, which is you stop halfway through on an incomplete sentence and then pick up the next day. But I believe language, whether we're looking, if we're going back to the Psalms, if we're going back to our favorite poetry, to our favorite music lyrics, sometimes it doesn't matter what the words are trying to tell us in the literal sense. The way they fall on the ear says so much more, right? That's the way I engage with fiction, is as much on the ear as in the head. That's my favorite thing. You know, my favorite writer is Barry Hanna and the Jimi Hendrix of fiction. That is when he's working the best, and that is when it's the most exciting to read, where it becomes the act of reading becomes this visceral, visceral experience where the words that follow each other are so unexpected that you're literally on a journey within the sentence. David Rakoff was also really wonderful at that as a wordsmith. That's where everything would start every day, this idea of how do I reach this place of invocation, and, and that would be putting words together, putting images together, working them over and over until they started to sing. When you're moving into the later drafts and you're actually working with the completed manuscript, then the real writing is happening. The novel of all literary forms a, it's very unforgiving. The form dictates a lot in itself. And by form, I'm talking about length. It's not a coincidence that most novels fall 65,000 on the light side to 140, with majority falling right in at 75 to 90,000. That's not a coincidence. That's the form. That being said, when you have the completed manuscript in front of you, then begins the true shaping of it and what eventually will become that wonderful, hopefully not contentious, dance with your editor. But at the same time, there is something to struggle in art. And Dan and I did have a contentious editing process, but it made for better work. I don't know if it made for the best work, in full disclosure, but it did make for better work for what I began with. The completed manuscript topped out at about 160,000 words. By the time it made it to print, it was cut down to about 75,000. So a good two-thirds of the manuscript did not make it to print through the editing process. No writer wants to cut 80,000 words. But at the same time, it's part of the process. It's part of this acknowledgement that we're engaged in publishing. And as soon as that manuscript's done, it does. You have now entered the part of the journey where you're considering things under publication and you're working with a team. You're considering criticism. It's easier to work with, of course, in Microsoft Word, but the eyes switch. Your eyes have to switch to how you're reading it. At this point, this is where your eyes, you know, probably aren't worth much this deep into the process. You're too close to the work. The best thing any writer can do is take a manuscript and put it away and not look at it. I've tried a million ways to try to recreate that. There's nothing you can do. If you have the ability and the patience to finish a manuscript, put it away for a year, 
your editing process will be so much better. There's nothing you can place for fresh eyes. But in the world of publishing, that's what we have editors for. Many of them are good at it. Many of them are okay at it. Here's the reality. Four Corners, my first novel, took me so long to get published, I had enough time to complete the manuscript to Mighty Mighty. It wasn't completely ready, but I was at a point literally the day that Dance Matanka took on Four Corners was the same day I had told Amy Tipton, my agent at the time, you know what, this happens. Four Corners had been on sub for two years. First novels go in drawers all the time. And I've completed a new manuscript. I'm very excited about it. We've done our due diligence. As much as I hate to do this, let's lead with this other manuscript. On that same day, Dance Matanka acquired Four Corners. So we went through publication, and then I continued to write more on Mighty Mighty. That's why the manuscript really ballooned. After Four Corners came out, we went pretty fast. We went, I believe, probably six to eight months. I was back on the calendar. Dan and I had had a wonderful dance on Four Corners, but on Mighty Mighty, I remember the call quite clearly. He called after he'd reviewed the manuscript. I stepped outside of my house over on Monterey Road, and I started walking, as I do when I'm on a call. And his first and only question was, what do you think about this manuscript? <laughs> and I... I was like, I think, I think it's pretty great. <laughs> I think it's a great, great manuscript. I think it's, you know, there's work to be done. And Dan, he had some concerns. He had some passionate concerns about the status of the manuscript. As we've mentioned, it was too long. It was disjointed. I was trying to do too much. And counterpoint to its credit, you know, this is the thing is counterpoint's an author's house. So an author's house means ultimately the writer ultimately gets last call on what goes to print. They take that really seriously. Dan takes what he brings to the table very seriously. We were going sentence by sentence on what he wanted out and what I wanted in. We would have passages that we would literally be going back and forth on each sentence and the way I was using grammar I don't like semicolons. We would get into comprehension. We would get in, you're, you're, you're trying too hard. It's too graphic. You're going to turn the reader off. You know, looking back, he was right about so much. I was just talking about this last night with my novel classes. You know, ultimately, you have to find out and discover what you're going to pick your fights on. It's valid to fight. I truly believe that you are the expert on your own work. Here is the reality of it. Dan goes on to edit other books. He's an incredible editor. He's one of the best out there. Wally takes another five years for me to write another book. At the end of the day, it's my name on the critical review. So I have to be able to look myself in the mirror, quite literally, and be comfortable with every single choice that I made on the page. Even if it's a risk, I want to know that I made every single choice. The worst situation I could be was like, oh, why did I listen to that? So it's not that I discount Dan's advice or I discount his edits, but it's more along the lines of, let's talk about this edit. I see your point. I'm not asking him to convince me, but I am asking for an in-depth conversation, specifically when we're talking about content. With that book, it was a lot of discussion in terms of how graphic we wanted to be without... I love reality. Dan's reading for readability. 
sometimes those two things are oil and water. Because of this dance, because of this rather passionate, contentious dance, I wouldn't say I was late to press, but I could have been earlier. And to give it insight into the process for those who don't know about it, New York Times, Washington Post, Kirkus, they have rooms getting filled with books every day. You want to get in early, give your book as much of a chance to be out there. You're also trying to secure blurbs at the same time. This whole process to ultimately garner definitive critical review. And that's what I was looking for. The nature of my work is challenging. It's not for everybody. I accept that. I think it has value. I think it's very relevant. But that being said, because we had gone back and forth, we were a little bit late. And so here we are. Now it's to the arcs have gone out. And the book is on its way to, you know, press. And I'm getting little mentions here. I think I got a nice write-up like the Chicago Sun-Times, but it keeps going and then it's out. I've done my readings. And I'm getting really good mentions, a few unfavorable, but nothing definitive yet. Like check a lot of check this book out, great blah, 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 great little, little one-off paragraphs. So I'm staring this down because within 18 months or two years, I published 10 years of work. And I don't have anything else at this point. I don't have another manuscript. Knowing that I need a critical review, I need something very definitive written about the work and acknowledging the work to go forward because otherwise it's going to be a real uphill battle. Then we can get into talking about am I staying with my agent? Am I staying with my publisher? All those things come into question. I learned very quickly the one thing that's worse than getting bad reviews is getting no reviews. It's terrifying. No one knows your books out there. At the end of the day, book tours, God bless them, they're so much fun. But at the same time, they're exercises in ego. And the reality is that is where the critical community and the book review is the nexus of academia, criticism, and mainstream publishing. That's where it happens. And that's where you garner attention and garner credentials as a writer and as an artist. So here we are, not much, really crickets, a few things here and there, but real nothing definitive. The publisher has to move on, right? They've got more books coming out. So the publicist is like, hey, we got to start working on the next round. We've done what we can, the book's out there. Then in the last ride is we're going into another publication cycle. I got our huge review in the Los Angeles Review of Books. It was a very definitive review. It was a breakdown of what I was attempting on the page and big critical validation. You know, someone saw what I was trying to do. That's the best thing you can ask for, even if it's a bad review or a good review, is a literary critic seeing your attempts on the page and giving you a close enough read and hopefully a forgiving read to look at you as an artist and to look at you as what you're ultimately trying to get to. I got that, and it enabled my career to move forward. But there was some nail-biting, and there was a lot of restless nights and a lot of straight-up fear because I didn't know what the future held for me as an artist. My relationship to the writing and my ongoing journey as a writer has changed between book one, Four Corners and Mighty Mighty, and now as I work on my third manuscript, Turangalila. In Four Corners and Mighty Mighty, I was trying to write for critical reviews. I was attempting stuff. I was taking risks. I was trying to write something new. 
something exciting. I was trying to write work of note. That is the truth of it. I really went into it in both cases being like, I'm going to write work of note. I want to write work of note. I want to write something definitive to my experience and definitive to my voice because I was aware of it enough to know it's not going to be just good enough. I'm not coming from the pedigree of an MFA program. I'm not bringing that to the page. It's what's on the page, and I have to do something exciting. There have to be wows. There have to be fireworks to get people's attention. I love a challenge, so I really engaged on that. But that being said, now that I'm older and looking back on it, I can say I feel like I can finally write the way I want to write. Before, I was writing so much to be published. I always try to tell students, there is nothing absolutely wrong with self-publication. Nothing wrong. The completion of a novel manuscript is a feat unto itself. And if you would like to see that in print, there's nothing that changes it, whether it's in a literary journal or in a completed book that you do on CreateSpace on Amazon. You've created something, a voluminous amount of art, and that is great. That being said, if you enter into this world and into this business, because now we're talking business of publishing, you have to consider things. We're not all so lucky that we leave Iowa with agents beating down our doors and are immediately have the ability to create a short story collection. I started writing seriously in my late 20s and finally had written something of note into my early 30s. And so that's the change that occurs from one to two. I truly do believe everyone's got one good novel in them. And then I think the numbers go down drastically. Whether they got two, we'll see if I got three. But I'd like to think so. Here's what I know to be true. Whether or not you're putting words on the page or you're sitting down when you have a serious practice around your writing, if you're a writer, you just are. I think it becomes very apparent. It's the way you perceive the world. If we're going back historically, we are the storytellers or the history keepers of culture. It's a natural role in any group of people. I think when we're talking about how I continued, I fell in love with it. I don't think I'm the first writer to say I get very close to God with the process. There are very few things that replicate it. But now as I've gotten older, I think it, is, it truly is a life practice, something I've embraced. I truly believe no one has to teach anyone how to tell a story. Story is how we are taught to process the world. That is why there are children's books. That is why there are ancient texts, a religious text. What is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves? You don't need to be told a, a huge structure in the scaffolding. You know it implicitly. For myself, I think it was embracing the role of it. A true love affair. For better or for worse, just like any love affair. Truly for better or for worse, I love language and I love telling stories. And now, a reading from Mighty Mighty. Father Dunn watched her breath condense and dissolve in front of her. Again, she cursed herself for forgetting her phone. Chance had caught her off guard. She'd left in a rush. Since she'd gotten back to the States six years ago, cathedral shelter had been her life. People misunderstood, always thought her heart brimmed with healing love, like every day was Christmas to her because she was supposedly closer to God, like she had a special tea she sipped while she said a special mantra that turned on a special light inside her chest that made it that she required no sustenance besides the satisfaction of bringing homeless men and women into a 12-week program and convincing them to re-enter society before they died. Like convincing adults to abandon their addictions, 
secure employment, and seduce skeptical landlords and managers of halfway homes to give them a spot on a waiting list for a sinking mattress in a room the size of a large closet was so fulfilling that it actually lengthened her life, helped her sleep, and was free of any ulcer-inducing anxiety or cancer-causing stress. If she was honest, she was stunned in a daze. The whole thing, the murder, chance coming over at the crack of dawn, his face and body struck with terror was like she was trapped in a memory that wouldn't end. She was back in Africa when things were at their worst. Near the end, after three years of missionaries, she'd finally gotten used to the work. She stopped shrinking at the gang rapes and the gaping cracked skulls. Exposed bone and organs no longer made her wince. Some of the other priests went cold. Their hearts died at the sight of children with minced limbs, their white tendons dangling like bloody fringe on the ground. But she'd witnessed something else. It took her two years after she left to recognize it for what it was. Until then, she'd believed life and faith were companions, one heightening the other in a single ballad to heaven. But there, day after day, Life made its case under that damned sun on that parched, starving ground. Life argued in slaughter, and faith replied in joy. Like two hyenas, life cackled at the mass graves, reminding her of everyone's end, and faith snapped back with the velvet songs of survivors, their laughter and gracious prayers to God. It was there in a makeshift school, under a plastic blue tent, with the soles of her only pair of shoes worn slick, threadbare, taking on water and the chicken coops, or flooding with urine from the clinic as she ministered to the dead. There, she had finally realized the stakes of the fight. The people came to her, and she armed them with the orison she had composed herself. While the other priests ran away, she stayed and fought. Militias and legions killed everything around her, but her devotion screamed like a million raptors, delivering her barbed pleas to God. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andrei Nikolaev. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.